Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. We are in our third week of a series going through Ephesians where we are talking about the church. So we're not covering every detail in the book of Ephesians, but really looking very specifically about what the book of Ephesians in the New Testament has to say about the church and who we are as the church. And in the first, in week one, we looked at Ephesians chapter one, and we were reminded that it is God who brings the church together. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And he established the church. The church is his, and we belong to his church. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 2, and we saw that the church is intended for all people. Um, We as humans, it says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are, as a result, we're naturally divisive. We, we break with one another for all kinds of different reasons. But through Christ and the shedding of his blood for us on the cross, he was able to destroy the wall that divides us. As we put our faith in Christ, we become reconciled to God and to each other. And so through Christ, we are being built up together as the church. That's an ongoing process that we are on. This morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 3. And we will look at it in three parts. Mystery, mission, and measure. Mystery, mission, and measure. Can you say that with me? Mystery, mission, measure. Good job. So the first part, the mystery of Christ. Let me read for us Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. What's the most marvelous sight you have ever seen with your own eyes? Maybe it's a spectacular waterfall or a majestic mountain, a beautiful beach, 
I'm guessing with this crowd from many different spots in the world, that if we were to collect all of the marvelous sites, it would be an amazing collection. You have each seen beautiful parts of the world uh, that, that I've not been able to see, and I'm sure most of the rest of us haven't either. But when we take in these beautiful sites, we are able to just marvel at God's incredible creation. And it develops within us a kind of a, a sense of, of grandeur, a sense of mystery that God has, has done this. In this passage, Paul describes his insight into the mystery of Christ. That this mystery has been revealed at this time to Paul and to others, to the prophets and apostles. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the word mystery does for you. Um, when you hear the word mystery, um, I, I think sometimes I think of like mystery novels or mystery, you know, detective shows, and and it's really quite clinical, right? A bad deed has been done, and then there's a detective that looks through all of the the forensics and the, the clues and investigates and you try to solve the mystery. I don't think that's really what Paul is trying to communicate here. I think Paul is, is really getting at more of this mystery of wonderment, marveling at what God has done, that he's unfolded something that was for Paul unexpected. Paul is in awe of the fact that Gentiles and Jews stand on equal ground before God. In the Old Testament, we get hints that this is what God is doing, that God is the God of all nations. And yet, um, the, the, the Jewish assumption was still that Gentiles maybe have a role, but maybe it was like a, a lower role, perhaps a subservient role in God's kingdom. And so what's revealed here is that Paul, uh, Paul brings about clarity to this mystery, that God's people are not only the Jews, but come from all the nations. I, I don't know um, who all's in the room and what you're your ancestry is. Um, I'm guessing, though, this is just a wild guess, that the vast majority of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. And we can celebrate this inclusion that God has made it so that Gentiles and Jews, we all stand on equal ground before God because of Christ Jesus. Because of this mystery of Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. We have been predestined for adoption through Christ. In Christ, we have been redeemed through his blood, which means we have been forgiven, 
and we've been lavished with God's grace. We all can celebrate that. And that's just the first paragraph of Ephesians. There's so much more that we can celebrate together. This mystery means that we have been supernaturally brought together. As verse 6 says, that we've been made members of the same body. The church exists because Jesus made it happen through his death. And our diverse body of Christ is brought together as one family. I think sometimes in church life, we, we say brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, and we've done it so much for so long that we forget that we are really to be family, to treat each other as family, to love each other as family, sometimes even to, to argue like family. Because that means we are really open with one another, vulnerable to one another, and love each other so deeply. The middle part of this passage, of this chapter, the mission of the church. Let me read this, this section of the chapter. I'll read verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Plans are very important. Things worth doing are worth planning. And at times, I've been guilty of not planning. I like to think of myself as carefree, spontaneous. My wife will tell you that I'm not either of those things. But I want to think I am. I don't know what, why, really. And so not long after Karen and I got married, um, we were living in California at that time. Karen worked for a tea company, and her tea company had a food show in New York City. And so she was getting a company-paid trip to New York. My parents lived about 30 minutes right outside of New York at that time. And so we thought, well, this will go together. I, we can see my parents and, you know, go see New York, right? Um, why not? They're paying for a hotel room for her and everything. So we go, and then the first evening, um, she has free 
before the the food show starts and so we say we're gonna make a date of it and go look for you know some the perfect restaurant that would be romantic and have incredible food but also be cheap and our lack of planning meant we started walking and walking and walking i think we walked maybe 20 blocks looking for the right place we ended up cheating eat, eat, cheating e eating in a um place that was not that great and not that cheap so we failed and really just as a pretty small amount of planning would have fixed that um now all of that to say that's a pretty trivial matter our dinner one random evening in the history of the world is a tiny little speck but what about when we start to when we think about god and all of human history it's comforting to know that god has a plan that this is worked out from before the foundations of the world. God is a planner. And so verse 9 tells us that the unveiling of the mystery reveals God's plan. And God's plan from all eternity includes the church. In verse 10, it says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, that's just, um, it, it, it's a verse that requires uh, some, some thought, some meditation. So the church exists to reveal God's manifold, the manifold wisdom of God made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is not just letting the rulers and authorities on earth, the heavenly places. This is of cosmic consequence. God chose us before the foundation of the world, brought us from death to life, tore down the wall that divides us from one another, reconciled us with God himself, so that we could display the manifold wisdom of God. It's an extraordinary thing. So in other words, the church is not merely a thing to show which religion we affiliate with. It's not merely a holding cell until we get to heaven. The church is God's plan, activated in Christ Jesus, with a purpose of declaring God's rule and glory to a world sitting under a death sentence. Not only that, God's glory is manifested in the heavenly realms. Two, two things, if we were to just simplify this a little bit, two things this means. First, the church is the community of the king, which means that the church is under God's care and rule. Second thing is, this means we've got business to take care of. We have a purpose. We have a mission. We have a responsibility. We get a little more insight 
uh, from this in Matthew chapter 16. So just briefly, we'll skip over to Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. The context is Jesus pulls his disciples um, out, uh, actually to an area outside of the, the prominent Jewish area, a more Gentile area. It's almost like they went on a little retreat, and Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. They, first, he asks who others say he is, and then he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter quite often the, the, the one to speak up in class, says this. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so then Jesus responds with this. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This means the church is here to stay. God has put it in place and it will continue. Hell is powerless to overcome the church of Jesus Christ. But there's another point in this passage that maybe gets less attention. Jesus gives his disciples the keys of the kingdom of God. And what we do with this has eternal consequences. The church has eternal significance and has a responsibility to represent God's perfect and just kingdom in the midst of our broken and hurting world. Jesus began his ministry by talking about the gospel of the kingdom. He ministered to all types of people in ways that went against any kind of worldly norm. It just didn't make sense in worldly logic. And we, you and I, we've been called to carry on this ministry. You might be thinking, well, that was Jesus. I can't do that. And if that's what you're thinking, I won't say this often, but I'll say it this time. You're wrong. If he's called you to do it, he will also give you the resources to do it. John 20, 21, Jesus says, as the father sent me, so I send you. We are sent in the same way that Jesus was sent. He sent the Holy Spirit to do his work within us. And the church of Acts was to continue the work of Jesus. So the very first verse of Acts, it's uh, written by Luke. Luke wrote volume one, which was the gospel of Luke, and then Acts was volume two. And so he says this in Luke chapter one, verse one, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke's first volume takes us all the way from Jesus' birth to Jesus' 
death and resurrection and even ascension. And so then Acts, he's continuing to talk about what Jesus is doing, but it's primarily about the church. What Jesus began to do and teach was during his lifetime, and then what he's continuing to do is through us, his church. Who then carries out Jesus' ministry? Us. We do. The church of Jesus Christ. This then is why Paul says in Ephesians 3.1 that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. This is why Paul was gifted and empowered in verse 7 to proclaim Christ to those who do not know him. Mission is not something the church does as an added program. It's at the core of why the church exists. A Swiss theologian once said, the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. Church, we have a mission. Paul willingly suffered for the sake of his mission, imprisoned for the sake of mission, beaten for the sake of mission. The mission was so important that it was worth suffering. Paul made it his life mission, sent out from a church in Antioch because they knew it was their mission. And we can look back over the last 2,000 years and see many examples of those who have stepped up to carry on this mission message, to carry this message far and wide. Anybody know this last Thursday what holiday it was? Sort of holiday. No one gets off work for it, but St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, and St. Patrick, I don't know, you know, why we ended up with St. Patrick's Day being what it currently is which is leprechauns and green and a lot of drinking. I don't know if you know the story of St. Patrick. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He was born in England in the very earliest Middle Ages, right at the, the point where the Roman Empire was totally totally done, not totally done, but pretty well crumbled at that point. L lived, grew up as a peasant boy. And then as a teenager, uh, marauders came, pirates came and kidnapped him, took him on a ship and took him to Ireland as a slave. Um, he was there then forced to watch over sheep uh, for years, this was his life, was doing the bidding of someone who, who um, had purchased him. It was cold, lonely, and um, he had just enough of a spiritual Christian upbringing to have an idea of who God was. And so during those cold, lonely nights, he began to call out to God. And over the years, 
his relationship with God became more and more intimate. Um, at some point, God gave him a vision uh, that um, encouraged him to, to look for a way out, to escape. And so he walked a long, many miles to the coast and made his way onto a ship. Uh, the ship ended up in France. They got, uh, even then, the, the, the crew were starving. And they said, well, you talk about this God, you know, um, can you pray for us to find food? And, and he does. And then suddenly there's uh, an animal nearby, a pig nearby, and they're able to eat. <clears throat> Again, God delivered in, in just so many different ways in Patrick's life. He went back to England, um, to home. And God had a calling on his life. And so he studied to become a priest, uh, even to, uh, to become a bishop. And he felt God calling him back to Ireland. The very people that stole him away and enslaved him for so many years, God called him to go back to those people to proclaim Christ. And so he does. In, in the face of family and friends, who all told him, don't do it. Um, and yet this calling compelled him to go. By the time of his death, a, this island of Ireland, which was completely pagan, was now almost entirely Christian. And then God used the Irish to then take this message back through Europe. There's a book written a number of years ago by a guy named Thomas Cahill called How the Irish Saved Civilization. And what they did, they had monks that just with this same burning message that Patrick had, they went throughout Europe. At a time when the Vikings were coming in and destroying everything in their path, these monks would come in and they would plant gardens and help villages restore life, uh, teach children to read. They would copy manuscripts of books. And over time, they just kept coming and coming. They would get killed by Viking marauders, and they would send another group. Over a thousand years, they did this. And that was the process God used to really reach much of Europe at that time. Patrick was an ordinary dude, but he had been transformed by an encounter with Christ. God has used ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things throughout the last 2,000 years, most of whom um, didn't become famous. No one's drinking green beer or making a whole river, the Chicago River, green. As a result, most serve in quiet corners around the world with no, no one um, posting anything about them on Instagram or anything. And yet they have this calling and they serve sacrificially all over the world. I've been told of a young woman in a house church in China 
And when she heard about the millions who had never heard the name of Christ in the Middle East, uh, she had a restless night of sleep. And the next morning, she bought a bus ticket to go that direction. More recently, a young woman in the Philippines was working in the corporate world, not raised in the church at all, began to wrestle with the meaning of life. And I think she started Googling the meaning of life and um, found some, you know, kind of dumb, meaningless quotes, but then also found a passage of scripture that drew her in. And she visited a church very similar to ours, an international church in Manila. And she encountered Christ. And it was, it so radically changed her life that uh, this last week, she made the steps to go to a restricted country to take the message of Jesus to a place where she probably faces danger. But the message is more important. The pattern, this pattern does not make sense to the world. Our idols become roadblocks for doing this sort of thing. It's only through a restored relationship with the creator of the world through Christ Jesus that we begin to see things differently. A day in God's court is better than a thousand days elsewhere, says the psalmist. So how much, how much thought have you given to this idea of being on mission? It doesn't mean that you need to cross borders necessarily, although if that's what God is calling you to do, then it does mean that. It simply means that since you have found hope in Christ, that you should now pass that hope on to others. And for some, this may scare you maybe even scare you deeply, possibly thinking of excuses in your head. I'm not good with words. I don't know what to say. Fear is not always bad, but we have to evaluate our fears and think through what our fears are motivated by. Are we afraid because we are concerned about our reputation or our pride? That's not the good kind of fear. For fear is based on maybe our concern over our inability to witness to Christ, then it should drive us to pray. People are not saved because of our techniques or clever words. They are saved because they encounter Christ. People are not saved because you can win a debate. They are saved because they have a sudden awareness that God is pursuing them. We don't need to tell people what we know. We need to introduce people to who we know. Point them to the unsearchable riches of Christ. Our third point, our third section of this chapter, it's the measure of Christ's love. And I'll read the last uh, section of verses here. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to his, the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This chapter ends in prayer. The church is God's brought together because of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It stands to reason then that we should turn to God for the resources to continue as church. We've been talking about the mission of the church. We live in a city where the evangelical population of the city is maybe 1.6%. The greater Klang Valley has roughly 9 million people. And that means that more than 98% are lost. And quite frankly, that can feel overwhelming. Beyond our abilities, beyond our scope, But Paul was also in facing overwhelming odds, being in the Roman Empire, where really just a handful of churches in a few cities throughout the Roman Empire uh, existed. He was staring at impossible odds. And so how does Paul then respond? Naturally, he begins to lay out his grand strategy and his gospel advertising campaign. He marshals the most influential politicians and business leaders to sweep the empire, right? Is that what he does? No, he doesn't do that. Not at all. He speaks of his burden for the Gentiles. But then in the next paragraph, he goes to prayer. What does he pray for? Strategies and influential people? No. He prays that Christ would dwell in the hearts of those reading this letter. And as Christ dwells in their hearts, that they would be grounded in his love. Paul knows that a clever campaign might get a crowd for a day. But when people realize they are delighted in by God, that they are empowered with divine love, that that is worth everything. It's the gospel that led Paul and others to give their lives entirely for the cause. So what is this, this love that Paul describes here? It's not pushover love. It's powerful love, the kind that compels Christians to love their enemies it's not fleeting love. It's everlasting love. The kind that burns brightly into all eternity. 
This is not feel-good love. It's the kind of love that leads people to self-sacrifice. This love was perfectly expressed through Christ when he gave his life for the sake of those who call on him. Paul knows that your fellowship with God can lead you into a deeper and deeper understanding of God's love. And that you will then be similar to Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, where they, in the face of being arrested, they say, you know what, I can't help but talk about Jesus. Have you ever experienced this depth of love? This love goes beyond anything we will experience in a normal earthly life. The love of a spouse does not measure up to the love of God. Even the love of a mother for her children pales in comparison to God's great love. It is for you to experience this by turning to God. Bow before him. Open your clenched fists and receive God's love. Call on the God who longs to be our loving father. There are a few takeaways for us in this. One, marvel at the mystery of Christ, who's bringing us together as one new humanity. Celebrate what God is doing. Practice seeing each other as God's work of bringing us together as the church. Build bridges with each other. Second, move to be on mission. Remember, it's less about technique and more about honestly pointing people towards Christ. As a church, it'll be good to have conversations with each other about ways that we can proclaim Christ together, how we might demonstrate the gospel in our community and our city. Some of you may already be doing some of these things. You may already be serving in different ways. How can we as a church be praying for you? How can we as a church come behind what you're doing? to impact our city. And thirdly, go to God. Commune with God. Be vulnerable before God. Come to know God in a way you never thought possible. As you do, take your brothers and sisters with you through prayer. And that's what we see Paul doing here. Paul is praying for the Christians in Ephesus to experience Christ so deeply that there's no other way to explain what's happening in their lives. Will you pray for each other in that kind of way? We know that we can do this because he described earlier that we have access to God. This is unbelievable access. 
This is an access card that could get into every building in KL. It's unbelievable access because of Christ Jesus. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this example of Paul in praying for others. And so beautifully knowing that, that it is all about our relationship with you. So, Father, I pray for, for each person here, whatever barriers there are between us and you, God, Father, that you would reveal those things. And we know, God, that we don't have the ability to tear down those barriers, but we know that you did on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that we go from here today even more, more ready to commit to you, to bow before you, to live each day as your children. Father, I ask that as a church that you continue to bring us together so that we together as a church are living sacrificially on mission, that we are a church who displays the manifold wisdom of God here on earth and in the heavenly places. Father, as we go throughout this week, that we be mindful of who we're around and that we might point them to Christ. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.